Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives Philip Birdies and Eagles. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we are excited to talk with Josh Polinsky, co-founder of Slate Milk, a rapidly growing all-natural canned chocolate milk and latte brand founded by Josh and his good friend from Northeastern, Manny Lubin. Josh and the team at Slate have taken an idea that the love of chocolate milk as an adult is not only okay, but can be a healthy alternative to other drinks and turned it into a multi-million dollar business, which is currently undergoing a $10.5 million Series A fundraising to widen its expansion. But long before Josh was a successful entrepreneur, he could be found at Blue Hill Country Club in Canton, Massachusetts, where he worked as a caddy for 10 years through middle school, high school, and college. This experience led him to learn about the We Met Scholarship, which he earned as he entered his freshman year at Northeastern. Josh was such a standout We Met Scholar, however, that he was chosen to be the student speaker at the 2018 annual banquet and wowed the crowd with his humor, his openness about mental health, and his entrepreneurial spirit. Today, Josh is on the We Met Fund's board of directors as a young alumni leader, and has given back since graduation. The We Met community is fortunate to have Josh as an alumnus. We hope you enjoy our conversation, and thanks for listening. So what's up, man? Are you in Westwood? No, Brookline. Okay. We were in LA for a few days last week. For like big trade show, and then actually for the first time in my life, just went to Las Vegas. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, it was cool, and it was great weather because it was just awful, freezing cold, rainy, all in California when we were there first. So getting out there was nice. It's like being home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and congrats on the engagement, Josh. Thank you. Thank you. That's really exciting. Thanks. Yeah, six years in, it was time. That's awesome. That's great. Do you have a date picked up? Yeah, we're going next May, so we're going to do it up in Gloucester. That's great. Congrats. Beautiful. Well, that's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah, Josh, it's fantastic to have you on today. And thank you for taking the time out of what clearly we imagine must be a very busy schedule. Yeah, of course. We're excited to talk, obviously, about Slate, your time in Northeastern and Blue Hill. Yeah, yeah. But I think first we'd like to start with how we start with all of our guests, which is what are your first memories of the game of golf? Who or what brought you to the game of golf? Yeah, dad, he's a huge golfer. Actually, what I didn't realize is he didn't really come to him until he was in his high school, but more so in his 20s. He was a little bit of a late bloomer. But as soon as I can remember when I was born, all the way until one, two years old, I had a putter in my hand. And we were members of a local country club out here, Blue Hill and Canton. My first club was an eight iron. And so we'd go out there when I was three, four, five, six years old, go on the range. And it was just a race between my sister and I of who could hit the ball 100 yards first. (laughs) It took a while for us either to get there, but I'm pretty sure she beat me there like she always did when we were little. But that was my first early memories of we'd go have dinner there and then be putting and then go try to hit a ball 100 yards. So that was really my introduction to the game. And then at the same time, every single weekend, Saturday and Sunday, is sitting in front of the TV and watching Tiger Woods. And that yep. was without a doubt every Saturday and Sunday he was playing. And, and he was on Saturday and Sunday a lot back when you were coming up. <laughs> he was. I don't think I appreciated at the time how incredible it was and how I remember very, very specifically. Why E. Yang beating him or like, so do um, I, Josh, just, just like those oh, very absolutely. specific times where like he lost because it was so infrequent. 
that it would ruin my entire week. <laughs> That's really where the passion came from was not only was I trying to putt and hit a ball 100 yards, but also it was my entertainment on the weekends as well. So really started to fall in love with it. And that's why when I knew, second I turned eight years old, the opportunity to work in the game of golf, and for me it was caddying, then that was the opportunity I couldn't pass up on. Essentially, you knew you were going to have your mornings free because Tiger was going to have a late tea time. (laughs) So you said, all right, let me book up my mornings and get paid for it while being at Blue Hill. Yeah, exactly. My dad and his father grew up in the butcher industry. So they had a butcher shop in downtown Boston from the early 1900s. And so when they were six, seven, eight years old is when they started working as well. I don't even think it was a dedicated like, all right, once you're eight, you go start working. But I just feel like it was in my blood that I just wanted to go do something. And like you said, it was the opportunity to make money, but also just be around the game because I wasn't playing a lot yet. I still was hanging around the driving range, slowing down to many groups to be able to play at this place. So My friends and I just started to play nine holes at a time at some public courses, but just to be around it more and just learn from people that were playing a lot more often, the opportunity was caddying. When I walked over there, it was, you're too young to actually be a real full-time caddy here, but I just started caddying for my dad and some of his friends and just learn exactly what caddying meant. And for, as you guys know, most people think caddying is you carry a bag and have people yell at you the whole time. And that is the farthest thing from the truth of what it actually takes to be a good caddy, because anybody can just show up and carry a bag. But if you want to make good tips and be asked to come back, there's a lot more to it. That's what I was going to ask. So you started at the age of eight. It almost sounds just a little too young to even carry the bag, but clearly you were able to do that. When did you actually become a full-time caddy? How many years were you a caddy at Blue Hill? You spent a lot of years there. Yeah, I was caddy for about 12 years. 12 years. And you were throughout your time there, very highly respected and desired caddy. So take us through when you started actually as a full-time and some of the mentors and some of the members that you remember working for there. Eight to 10, I would say, was mostly friends. And then when I would caddy for somebody, if they enjoyed it, they're like, oh, I'm not going to be here this weekend. One of my friends is coming. So I would say 10 years old is when I started caddying for people that I didn't necessarily know super well. But the full-time caddy role that I was on the roster was probably 12. I think that was the more normal age period for most folks to get involved on the younger side, working with the caddy master. And at the time, when I first joined the pro, when I was really little, was Vinny, who taught me literally with my dad, was my first golf swing ever. This is Vinny Del Zappo, Josh? Vinny Del Zappo, yep. There we go. Nice. Yeah, legend. Legend. Yeah, he was awesome. Literally would just stand with me on the putting green and show me how to putt and stuff like that with my dad. And then Lou took over. And Lou was really, Lou actually wrote one of my recommendations for the We Met. He was the pro all basically throughout the entire time for me caddying and really helped get me set up with him. And Blake, he was the caddy master over there, just making sure that anything I needed, I was taken care of. And they would literally like between my dad showing me how to rake a bunker properly. And my dad definitely had a lot of really good insights based on being a player, what he appreciated in caddies. But then Lou and the crew over there, just making sure that I knew the fundamentals of what it meant to be a Blue Hill caddy was really, really important to make sure that I was reflecting what they wanted to see. And that was keeping up the group, where to sit when you four caddy, all that good stuff. So some of the members, so many over the years, one of my core guys was Mr. Leach. He was actually a judge. And I met him when I was, I want to say 13 or 14. I caddied for him for the last six years of my career. Not only was I caddying for him at Blue Hill, but whenever he'd go play member guests in other places, he'd bring me with him. We were very successful in our career. 
think we won three or four member guests. We won the Calcutta one year at the Blue Hill. When I was working there, there were two Vinnies, the Pro and the Super, Vinny Iacono, Vinny Del Zappo. <laughs> and then obviously I got to know Lou Katzos afterwards as well through We Met as when he came in after Vinny. He was awesome and a huge supporter. My dad had at least been around to know what the We Met was, but really Lou was the one who introduced me to the We Met Fund. Growing up catting, I just wanted to be a part of it, and it was such a huge part of my life for forever. It's how, it's how I made any sort of money, but it's also how I really built the foundation, I think, for doing anything in the future, where after a couple of years, my friends would see that you can make some money on the weekend in cash, and they would try to come with me and want to go try to follow in the footsteps. But a lot of them just later on didn't catch the bug, I don't think, like I did, where they would do it a couple of times, but they didn't necessarily have the relationships that I had growing up to with Lou and Vinny and a lot of the guys. And so once you get in this rhythm of the different people around there, and then I got to know a lot of the other folks. The guy I caddy for for the last six years was a judge, Mr. Leach. Not only would I caddy for him at Blue Hill, but when he'd play in member guests and other parts of the country, he would bring me with him. With the first member guest oh, we wow. played together, he won. <laughs> I think he thought I had something to do with that. I don't know how much I actually impacted it. But the Josh Magic? Yeah. The, the Josh Magic. I think we won like three or four member guests. We won the Calcutta, which is a big tournament every year at Blue Hill, and a couple others. So we would go down to Wanamoisa, down to Rhode Island, and play with one of his buddies there. He was a member at Ledgemont. We were, we were all over. It's not like we're going to California, but <laughs> we were all over New England. It's technically a different state. You technically traveled yeah. 20 minutes to a different state. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I had just got my driver's license when I turned 17 and that was it. And then beyond just caddying, the relationships with him and I've caddied for the Mixed 1041 crew, the Jordan's Furniture guys, people that are just local legends. But even for some of the guys that I got close with caddying, it would ask me to do things even outside of it. I ended up being a chaperone at a couple of bar mitzvahs <laughs> for some of the guys, for their kids, because they knew... I had a lot of trust in you, Josh. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but it was just a way to make extra money. And I guess, like you said, they trusted me to not kill their 13-year-old kids when they're out on the road. I was not <laughs> driving the bus, but I was at least making sure that when half of them inevitably would try to run out of the temple and try to cut corners, I was making sure they were going back in and doing what they needed to do. And it's funny because people often talk about how, especially for Colin and I, we hear these stories all the time. We have 450 scholars a year, over 6,500 alumni. So we hear from a lot of people in different industries how much golf taught them things that they're using in their day-to-day life still to this day. What do you feel like you learned from working in golf at Blue Hill, whether it's from the relationships or the actual being on the course that you still use to this day, or maybe even helped in the launch and growth of Slate? Two huge things. One, which I say all the time is my dad's line, is that you're naked on the golf course. Not physically, but you can see exactly who somebody is, what their character is, who they are based on how they play the game. Because it really is about how you carry yourself as an honor thing, the ability to kick the ball a little bit, or if anybody is doing something in a game. And again, golf's so important, but if they're willing to do things in the the game that gives them an edge or something that's not up to standards, up to par, then what are they going to do in the outside world? And so, so much of what I do, whether it's in recruiting somebody or interviewing somebody or being willing to partner with somebody in the world of business, playing golf with somebody really shows a lot about them. And it's not just, are they cheating, but it's how do they react when things go poorly? Because golf's about a game of misses, not necessarily about hitting every shot correctly. And so that really, to me, shows a lot about who people are. And especially, I think, on the other side, too, is not everybody plays all the time. And so can they keep their level of composure for a full 18 holes? keeping up with pace and still being happy to be there and having good conversation throughout. 
So I think that's one big, big, big thing for me that I really use as a measure of who somebody is, whether they play or they don't, just how they carry themselves. But for me personally, I wouldn't have known that without growing up around it. When I was little, I had a temper and a really bad one. And other sports like basketball and things like that, I remember just walking off the court when I was eight years old because I just was having a good game. It was things that I don't know if it felt like I was entitled to or what, but I always had talent when I was younger. I was always bigger when I was younger. And so I was good. And then when everybody started to catch up and things became harder, I didn't really know how to react to that. And so by caddying and by playing the game of golf, it's you against you and can't just walk away from yourself. There's no team to pick up and finish the round for you. It made me face reality a little bit. And so I think that for me, growing as a younger kid into what I am now, it really taught me that I can't just walk away from that. But then also seeing how all of these other folks did it. You have the most successful guys in the world around you and whatever their profession was, was there a lawyer or a banker or whatever, listen to their conversations, listening how they got to where they were. And I was always a very inquisitive caddy. It wasn't just stand there and let them play and don't say anything, which for me, I appreciated that these guys were willing to share their lives, what got them there, what they did incorrectly. And just absorbing all of that made it a no brainer in my mind that even though for a while I loved math and thought I was going to be an engineer, listening to what these guys were doing, I was like, I have to own my own business someday. This is exactly what I want to do. And from having these conversations, I knew I could do it. Owning your own business, that's obviously a few steps from when you started to have that evolution on the golf course in terms of what your future was. But I think those people you were caddying for, the people you were playing with, they saw what you were turning into and they liked that. And obviously they wanted to help you along the way. How did you start thinking about things like Northeastern or how you were going to afford it and the We Met Scholarship? I know you mentioned Lucatsos, but I know there's members involved. And how do you say, this is the direction I wanted to go in and how you pieced it all together? I mean, I love Boston. I knew I didn't necessarily want to go super far away, but playing golf in high school at Westwood High, we were able to win two different state championships, which was an incredible place to be a part of. And all of us talked about maybe going off and playing golf in college, but what we realized is we were low handicaps, but we weren't necessarily plus handicaps. So we weren't sure if that was really going to be the future that we could all bet on. A couple of the guys definitely were, but not for me. When I knew that college was going to be in my future, I love the idea of still being in the greater Boston area. And we looked at, and I really was excited about a bunch of different colleges around here, whether it's Northeastern or Boston College, Boston University. But the reason why I ultimately ended on Northeastern was the co-op program. And the co-op program, for those of you who don't know, is the ability to work full-time for six months at a time, and you get three opportunities to do it while you're at school. And they have a 98% placement rate. So it gives you this full-time job exposure where you're doing real tasks, you're able to test out different careers, where you're not job hopping for every six months by doing that. But Northeastern is one of those prestigious schools that's in downtown Boston, and it's an expensive school to go to. It's a private school. It's not a public university. And so while I was saving my pennies as much as I could from caddying, I knew it was going to be a big ask between my family and myself to afford such a place. And so I actually was just talking to Lou one time about where I wanted to go and it was the joke at the time between Lou and a couple of the other members that if you could sign your name on a dotted line, you could get into Northeastern back in their day. <laughs> I don't think they realized how hard it was going to be to yeah. get in. I don't think I could get in now. It's even harder. But when we started talking about it and the different programs and ways that I potentially have help, Lou mentioned that we met. And so we started talking about the scholarship program and I got to be involved in the game of golf for at least two years. And Luke walked me into the locker room and showed me all the previous scholars and 
did a really good job just letting me know what it was all about. And it's amazing. Once you hear something over the next two years, every single guy I caddied for would bring it up. And so it really started to build over at Blue Hill as I got older and knew that it's something that I really wanted to be a part of. I remember sitting in my high school girlfriend's living room, working on the application with her because she was a much better writer than me (laughs) and going through all the different essays and just making sure that we really captured what I wanted you guys to know. You weren't just a scholar. You became deeply a part of the community. It's funny. I started at the We Met Fund in 2017. I know you graduated in 2018. So we came through at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I remember you were at every event. You were really very involved. And you were so involved in the fact that you became the student speaker at the annual banquet that year. So the annual banquet honoring Jim Furyk. And as the banquet is approaching in a couple of weeks, we like to reflect on past student speakers and honorees. And you took on that challenge of being the face of We Met Scholars that year. When I walk into the room of any banquet, it's always amazing to see the scale of the event, the size of the room. There's 1,300 people in the room celebrating the fund. And you did an amazing job and left a real impact on people. And you're a very confident guy and very easygoing. But prior to speaking, when you were getting on stage, were you feeling confident? Were you feeling nervous? Were you feeling excitement? What were you feeling as there was building up to speak? Everything. (laughs) It's funny. I'm used to speaking in front of people. I'm used to speaking in front of groups and things like that from being in the world of business. But the impact of the banquet, that was something that I personally, before I was a part of the We Met, was the coolest thing in the world. The banquet is such an amazing opportunity not only to be surrounded by everybody that just loves the game of golf but really golf heroes as well all the different honorees over the years from Anna Palmer all the way through Jim Furyk it was just something that I wanted to be a part of and now that it was actually culminating to where I could sit and have dinner with Jim and his wife and a lot of the big supporters of the we met with Dick Connolly and all those guys it was just such an honor for me I didn't even know if I belonged there it was a little bit of imposter syndrome But getting up there, the first two lines, I was like, I might pass out. And then (laughs) after that, then it was smooth sailing. I looked out of the crowd and all you guys were there. My family was there. And for me, I was talking about something really important. That was how important the game of golf was to me, how important I believe the game of golf is to the world. And then not only how that impacted my business and the ability for me to be in the business world, but also a big piece of my speech was mental health. And that struggle with mental health for a long time. Um, Ever since I can remember, I still do. And I know that it's something that has been very taboo for a very long time. But I think what's amazing is even in the last few years since that speech has just become much more at the forefront. And it's still something that I'm super passionate about. So it's cool to be able to bring it out on that stage and bring all of my passions together between the golf world, the business world, the people around me, and then the idea of really making mental health less taboo. That's great. Josh, I mean, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that. That is a topic that comes up an awful lot. And how might how do you bring your platform today? Obviously, there's kids, whether they were dealing with school, whether it was relationships or family and distance and the mental health conversation, how do you feel like your platform has been elevated where you can make an impact on that? Still constantly trying to figure out how I can make that more and more. I think the first thing is just talking about it. And so with the We Met speech, it's actually something I still use. So when I have A lot of folks now that I've just brought it up or people know that, yeah, I've had anxiety since I was a little kid. My mom will have a patient because she's an occupational therapist. My son is really struggling with anxiety, but doesn't want to talk about it. My mom will actually send them the We Met speech. And it's a way that whether it's just in my personal life or something bigger than that, where it's in business or somebody else that I get introduced to or whatever, if I hear about it, people have a really hard time bringing it up about themselves. And so instead of 
sometimes it's hard for me to be like, no, I have the same thing. And they're like, sure, you're just saying that. But actually, the fact that I put it out there in front of 1500 people, I think gives it a point of validity for folks to be like, all right, he's actually serious. And so as I get on throughout my life, it's figuring out how I can make that a bigger part of it, whether it's working with kids in schools that are all the way down to elementary school. But a lot of what I'm doing right now, just a lot of what I have access to at this point is more so colleges. I would say I speak at four or five colleges every semester, usually pretty focused on the world of entrepreneurship. Because like mental health, for whatever reason, entrepreneurship is viewed as something that you don't talk about if you're starting it. You should be going getting a real job working in the world of finance. Even though Shark Tank has made entrepreneurship somewhat sexy, there's a lot of kids that's families are just do not go do that. You need to get a real job. And so part of what, what I do when I talk to these students is basically just encouraging them to follow their passion doing it in a way that obviously is fiscally responsible, that not everybody has the same opportunity, but if you do, why you should go pursue it. But then also really focusing on that, not only you have to take care of yourself in the world of business, making sure that you're putting yourself out there, but also that you're taking care of yourself both physically and mentally. And really talking about the fact that I talk about it just like how you go to the gym every day and you work out, just checking in to make sure that your mental health is in good order and working out those muscles is also just as important. That's really well said. And you've hit on some of that stuff. Now, it's really impressive how now you are public speaking all the time. That has very much to do with the company that you and your dear friend Manny founded. We'd love to hear, how did Slate come to be founded? I know that you and your co-founder Manny, you met, I believe, while studying at Northeastern. Had you been friends for a while? Was the idea a light bulb moment or did you guys kick this around for semester after semester? Manny's from Wellesley, I'm from Westwood. So we grew up 15 minutes apart. He's three years older. So we always joke. He's basically my dad. He's so much older than me. <laughs> and then we both went to Northeastern. We had mutual friends. We definitely met at Northeastern, but we really didn't even become friends until for him after school for me when I graduated. We were both in the tech world. Manny had a brand ambassador company and I was part of a SaaS platform. And we actually became friends through that. He was one of my first clients ever through my tech company. And we became friends. We would get coffee once a month. And we just always kicked around different tech ideas or food ideas. And one time we were joking about how we were both lactose intolerant, but loved chocolate milk. And that was it. That was just a complete joke. And we both had photos on our phones of our friends taking pictures of our refrigerators that had a lactose-free chocolate milk in it. Being like, these kids are losers. They have tummy <laughs> issues. And But my whole life, just all I knew, I was 10 years old, I would drink lactose-free chocolate milk all the time. And I always had a lactate pill on me for any time anybody ordered pizza or ice cream or whatever. And him and I were just commiserating over that. And that was it. There was really nothing to it. And six months later, at 11 p.m., Manny sent me a deck about changing the way people think about chocolate milk. It wasn't called Slate at the time, but it was changing the way people think about it and making a product that was healthier, better for you. And the brand wasn't for little kids, but it also wasn't for bodybuilders. It wasn't like a Nesquik, but it wasn't like muscle milk or something really intense. I was like, that is the dumbest idea. We were joking <laughs> about this. I do not want to do this. But he was persistent. And about two months later, he is very much the brand marketing guy. And I was much more sales and operations focused. And so we were like, this would be a happy marriage. So we just started kicking around on part time. And I was like, I'll help you with it. But we'll see. See what happens. And so that was in October of 2017. We actually didn't even launch the business until October of 2019. It was about two years of kicking around the idea understanding is there really an opportunity here. And so we were just in that kicking around phase going into the summer of 2018 when I was caddying. And I was caddying at Blue Hill. And I'd met this guy who was finally going to allow me to come to the other side of the table of Blue Hill and invited me to play in the member guest. 
So I ended up playing in the member guest that year. I showed up on the first day. Unfortunately, my partner at the time was too nervous. It was his first member guest. He was too nervous to actually play. So he ended up not even showing up to the tea time. I was the guest playing by myself in this member guest. Now, good thing it was Blue Hill because I knew everybody. <laughs> so everyone's like, oh, don't worry about it. Play by yourself. I was like, all right, you know, I'm here. I might as well. So I'm warming up on the practice range. And I used to be a very good golfer, as I mentioned. And this guy comes over to me and he has a harsh Boston accent. He starts swearing at me, asking how I'm doing what I'm doing. Apparently, it was an affectionate thing. He was impressed by how I was hitting the ball. And we started talking and he was a very, very nice guy. We ended up getting breakfast together. And turns out he was the first sales broker for a yogurt company called Chobani, which went from about $90,000 in sales to over a billion under his jurisdiction. Slate wasn't even quite like the forefront of what I really wanted. I wasn't sure if that was going to be the full-time gig. So we're talking tech companies. And by the end of it, we had get breakfast together. And he's like, when you start the next Facebook, you call me. Probably about three months later, it's a fall of 2018. I'm sitting with Manny and we get to the point where we think we really have something here. And we're going to need some money to fund the business. So I was like, I got just the guy. So I call him. He picks up. He's in the car with his daughter. And his daughter and him actually started Yasso Frozen Greek Yogurt. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. She was also an entrepreneur in that world. I was like, Stu? his name. It isn't Facebook, but it's chocolate milk. I received a few swear words and a quick click of the phone of basically that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard, the PG version. (laughs) So I I gave him a week and then I called him back and I was like, hold on a second, just meet Manny and I and let us pitch you. So we actually met at Blue Hill where it all started. We sat up there, had a couple of drinks and basically just pitched him on the future of milk, the future of chocolate milk. And The fact that there was a need for something that was higher in protein, that had less sugar, but that was also lactose-free. And right there in that meeting, we convinced an absolute no to becoming, all right, I'll give you guys a chance. Stu became our first investor. About a year later is when we eventually were able to launch into Whole Foods and all these other retailers. And here we are three and a half years later. It took a few no's. And obviously, there's a lot to be said about that, caddying, golfing on the golf course and in business. Talk us through a couple of the yeses, things like getting a couple thousand people to help you on Kickstarter to a definitive no on Shark Tank. (laughs) That progression, Josh, as you guys evolved into a little bit more success than what you thought maybe walking off Shark Tank. I think it was Ben Hogan that said that if he hit three really good shots in a round, it was really happy with the round. And so if you think about it, that guy on average is hitting 60 something shots, maybe 70 later in life. But for us, it's the same thing. If you get one good one out of 100 tries, typically you're a very successful entrepreneur. You get a lot more no's than yeses. And so early on, we got a lot of no's from investors of nobody drinks milk anymore was the very common thing. It was almost laughable, the fact that we were starting a milk company. And it was, why aren't you starting an almond or oat milk or these other things that are trendy? And so a lot of those no's made the yeses a lot sweeter, but it was hard for us to really determine, did somebody think that or would anybody believe, does anybody else believe in what we're doing? The Kickstarter was a really good way to do it. And so it allows people to pre-order the product if they are interested in what you're doing. So you make a video, you put it online and see what happens. And we had about 1,200 people actually back us on Kickstarter and pre-order the product. It was a little over $50,000 in pre-orders, which was an awesome way to just validate the fact that we weren't the only people that love chocolate milk but couldn't drink it anymore. And so with that Kickstarter video, we actually got reached out to by the casting producers of Shark Tank. 
And I'll never forget, we got an email from a guy with a Gmail basically saying, do you guys want to go on Shark Tank? And we're like, this is a scam. <laughs> and then he called us. We're like, dude, stop calling us. And then he called again. He's like, wait, 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 wait. And then he sent us his LinkedIn. And when being invited on the show, this was pre-product. This was pre-everything. Stu had just invested in the business. We had no formula. We had no sales. We had nothing. Didn't even have cans, Josh, did you? No cans, nothing. <laughs> we didn't even know if we were going to be in cans at that point. And when Shark Tank calls, you want to immediately say yes, but we just respectfully had a decline. And then they called back and we said no. And then they called back again. And they're like, nobody calls you three times. You better do this. We're like, all right, we're in. And what do you think was so attractive? Because I'm dying to hear, but what was so attractive about you guys? Was it the video that you made? Was it the big Kickstarter support? What do you think made them so excited to keep calling you, wanting you on the show? I think it was a little bit of everything. I think that the video was really well done. My co-founder Manny has a face for TV. Mine is a face for radio. I hate being on <laughs> camera. I love speaking in front of people, but anything recorded, I just fall apart. Manny did an awesome job with that video. And I think that they really liked our personality in it. We never take ourselves too seriously. And it also was not some big master professionally done thing. It was a friend of ours that videotaped it. And also it was different. Everyone was like, why aren't you doing almond milk? Well, it's for the exact reason that Shark Tank wanted us. It was something that was different. And they knew we were going to bring a ton of energy to it. And so going out there, we literally on our laptops came up with a brand, printed it out at a local Staples and wrapped sparkling water basically in what our brand might look like. And those are the cans that we showed. And we had a formulation team whip up an early iteration of the formula. To this day, I will stand by the formula was delicious. I don't care what anybody else says. We wouldn't have brought it if it wasn't delicious. There are some unfortunate circumstances for potentially what they were eating before they tried our product and things like that, that may not have helped. But for anybody that wants to go watch me get absolutely publicly annihilated on national television, go check out Shark Tank. You will see that they weren't huge fans of the product early on. But as the episode went on, they definitely started to enjoy it a little bit more. And really what it came down to was, you guys are too early. The product's not quite there yet. And also you're asking for a high valuation for a company that doesn't have any sales at this point. And I think it was great for us to take that feedback and going into it, we understood that we were too early. We understood that this was maybe not something we were setting ourselves up for the most possible best chance of having success. But Manny and I had the confidence that we are something that people would want. We are something that people would want to invest in. And it was like our Super Bowl. And talk about being nervous. I mean, right before we went out there, they told us that the guy previous had locked out his legs and passed out on stage. Oh, So if you watch Manny and I, we're <laughs> bouncing a little bit just to make sure we're bending our knees. I can't even imagine <laughs> the same thing, but that was the most nervous I've been in my entire life. I'll tell you what, Josh, and you guys should watch it. It's a really entertaining episode and you guys handled it with class. And I think that even if you type it in now, obviously you guys have had so much success. There are some real diehard fans of Shark Tank that monitor how these companies do after they've done well or poorly on Shark Tank. And they remember you guys so well. They're so excited that you guys are killing it. And the product now has, was it 300% growth from 2020 to 2021? It's available across the country, thousands of locations. You're growing rapidly and you're continuing to gain investment. And I think I've seen your partner, Manny, describe your marketing strategy as, I believe it was Buzz and Boots. Yeah, nice. Model of natural, almost guerrilla style growth. Can you walk us through that? And you guys have an amazing social media platform. How you leveraged your social media to grow the brand? We started end of 2019 in about 300 stores. In about a month here, we'll be about 12,000 stores available nationally. We started out with three flavors of the product. We now have five. We'll have a six coming out later this year. Those are ready to drink cans. 
We also just launched our first innovation of the powders. So we have our product in powdered format. Think of your Ovaltine growing up, but something that's higher in protein. And really what helped us get there is just all the people around us. It's leaning on family and friends to support us early on and the community around us, but also our team. We have about 35 employees right now, all the way back till day one in our first employee, Anna Carr, we call her AC, where Manny and I and AC would be hitting the road and demoing and building displays and trying to get extra placements in grocery stores. And we really figured out that when we were there, when we were building relationships with the individual store managers of a Whole Foods, for example, our business in that specific store would grow by 500% on average in that first year versus when you're not there. And so talk about the relationship game of what caddying and we met is all about. We've built our entire organization, more than half of our team, about 18, 19 of our folks of the 35 are in the field every single day, working with these grocery store managers to make sure they have what they need. They have coupons they can hand out to different grocery goers. We're able to get as much brand representation in the store as we possibly can. And that's all it is. And we love hiring ex-caddies. We love hiring folks that were we met scholars. We love hiring ex-athletes because they have that competitive drive. They know how to talk to people. And that's the boots component of what's made Slate successful. And so that's in the store. Before people get into the store is the buzz component. And so we really spend a lot of our time creating what we say is the billboard in your pocket, where, yeah, you can pay for a billboard out in a highway, but you're really hoping that people drive by that. And you can't control who sees that. Everyone's phone, whether it's Instagram or TikTok or Facebook or any other social media, we have the ability to put a billboard in your pocket through advertising. And that might be a specific ad or it might be through working with influencers that people follow or fitness trainers or pro athletes. And it's just for us, the passion of the product has really elevated it past any dollars. We obviously don't have the budget of a Coke or a Pepsi to be able to make all these athletes want to promote our products all the time. But a lot of these folks just purely their love for the product itself, but also I think the people on our team that make them feel excited about it makes them do a lot more than I think they would normally do if they were just getting a paycheck. And that's a big part of what we believe in is we're creating the buzz around the brand based on building it through the individual human beings. Nothing that we do is transactional. And then the boots on the ground pushes it through. It's been awesome. We've been super, super lucky so far in a variety of ways, but it's been really, really fun. The best part about it is the people that we get to work with. Josh, the buzz is real for years. I was just bringing these cans to the baseball games, the soccer games. My <laughs> friends are like, ah, oh, you're drinking the chocolate milk. And now they said, hey, I just saw a video of your chocolate milk company on there that you love so much. Nobody sells Slate better than Colin. He's been selling it for years. I promise you. Yeah, I know. I love it. <laughs> no one buys it better either. Yeah. <laughs> so Stu, Shark Tank, I mean, they never would have dreamed what they were listening to on the range or car on the show. But obviously now, I mean... We're proud of you. I'm sure they're thrilled with your success. What is the future of Slate? How do you see any transitions or pivots coming along the way or things you want to start focusing on in 2024? I don't even know if I answered your question earlier about the challenges we face too, but I think that the amount of no's that we get all the time, the amount of challenges that come up, we had no idea. We launched three months before COVID. And so talk about we were a retail first brand. We had to pivot very quickly to becoming e-commerce focused. And for that first year, more than half of our business was actually selling online because we just couldn't bring product into stores because of COVID. Thinking about pivots, what people don't tell you is um, maybe what they do is when you get into a business, when you own it, the buck stops with you. So if something happens, the world shuts down, you got to find a way to keep paying people. You got to find a way to see being a business. So 
foreseeable pivots, I can go down that path, but there's a lot more unforeseeable things that we're just going to have to react to and handle in the future. But things that we're actually planning for, we've largely built our business on the East Coast. We're at most major grocery stores on the East Coast. And so now the focus for this year and beyond is really to grow this, become more of a national brand. Retail partners across the country will be launching us in the next couple of months. So it's really making sure that the playbook that worked on the East Coast that we really built over the last three years of figuring out what works, what doesn't work. And really the Buzz and Boots model is what we've learned over the last three years. We're going to now implement that in the center of the country and on the West Coast to make sure that, again, we really understand what we're doing everywhere and making sure that the brand is recognized everywhere. So I think that's first and foremost. Beyond that, it's the ability to expand what Slate means to consumers. Right now, I think that Slate is, and Manny and I forever will be known as the chocolate milk guys. If we go to any trade show or anything like that, they're like, you guys are the chocolate milk guys. But we really want to stand for much more than that. We want folks genuinely to have products that taste really, really good, that are better for them, that are higher in protein without sugar. And I see it all the time. I come home, my dad's eating chocolate chip cookies. I love them, but I just see all the crap that he enjoys because <laughs> he's such a sweet tooth. And Slate has been able to replace that from a liquid perspective. But I think the platform of where Slate can go is creating healthy indulgences, things that normally are not that great for you, but maybe you enjoy it as a kid, whether it is a beverage or a food item that we can now give to consumers that are higher in protein, less sugar, if not zero sugar, and that are always lactose-free. Because most things with protein do have at least some lactose in it. And a lot of people have started to move away from real dairy products just because of lactose itself, which lactose is just a sugar that people have a hard time digesting. That's all it is. And so milk really gets a bad rap most of the time from that. So if we can really take away that connotation and give people things that are genuinely good for them and help them build muscle and help them be fueled for their day, that's what we're really excited about. And over the next couple of years, you'll start to see Slate break beyond just purely the liquid can, as you've seen with the powder. It's amazing. And as Colin pointed out before, we're really proud to have you as part of the WeMet community. What you and your team at Slate have built, it's extremely unique. It's really cool for us to follow. So we're really excited to watch it grow. Our last question is, you referenced it a few times, you're a fairly good golfer. Are you ever able to get on the course anymore or is that behind you now? So last year was the most I've ever played. Not ever. Okay. Last year is the most I've played since high school. I got out for just about 21, 22 rounds last That's year, which I was really excited about. I had a streak of since high school of not playing more than 15 times just because going to college, it was hard being in the city, not having a car. It's tough. And then afterwards, just jumping into this world, it was just a lot of travel, a lot of dedication to it. So I make sure it's a key priority for me to, it's what I love to do. It's also one of the things that I get to do with my dad almost every weekend on the summer. So beyond any business aspects, whatever, it's just a way that him and I get to stay connected and end up stopping by and seeing my mom and my sisters around that weekend too. So a lot of weekends in the summer, it's just my family time, which I really enjoy and hope never goes away. But in the future, the goal is for it to become a lot more of my life. I joke with Manny that if we're able to ever sell Slate someday, I am absolutely not talking to him for the next year until I'm a scratch golfer because it's all day every day that him and I are on the phone. So the goal is to get back there. My handicap has probably added, I think I'm 10 points higher than I was uh, when I was younger. So the goal is to get back there eventually. Good for you. It's been worth it, Josh. Oh, yeah. No kidding. That's been a good sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you, Josh. This has been awesome. We've had a great time catching up, and we're looking forward to seeing you a couple weeks at the banquet. Yeah, we'll be there. I'm bringing a crew, so it'll be fun. Oh, that's going to be great. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.